Our second lesson, Romans 13, beginning at the first verse, the Apostle Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and living Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. This is our second meditation on Romans 13 as we continue learning from God's word about our life together as citizens in the kingdom of God and simultaneously the kingdom of this world, what some would call church and state. If you were unable to be in worship last weekend or if you're visiting for the first time today, perhaps you'd like to go to our website and listen to that first message because today's meditation builds on what we learned together from God's word last week. And as a matter of fact, all of our sermons going back several months are posted on that website as audio files. In our reading, Paul writes in this second portion about taxes and love. How often do you use those two words in the same sentence? Taxes and love. Although you might phrase it this way come April 16th, I love finally having my taxes done. When it comes to taxes... Probably the most well-known passage of Scripture in the New Testament is Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. Mark records the very same words of Christ in the 12th chapter of his gospel. Luke does the same in chapter 20. The Pharisees have been out to trip Jesus up. They're trying to trap him. They're threatened by him, his popularity, the authority with which he teaches. And so they came to ask him, remembering, trying to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, you remember, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, even though the Pharisees had in mind to entrap Jesus, he's telling us the truth. The Lord is speaking to us a word. Pay your taxes. That's why Paul could remind the Christians in Rome, in his epistle, to do the same. Because Jesus had already indicated 
that paying one's taxes is the right thing to do. He established the teaching. Christ laid it down. Paul is simply reaffirming it. And long before the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus with their question, the matter of taxes was already having a profound impact on his life. So think back with me to these familiar words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, you know that Christmas gospel, don't you? Mary was not moody in her final trimester, telling Joseph, I need to get out of here. Let's have a little R&R in Bethlehem. Joseph did not tell his wife, I know you're with child, but I need to go to a trade show. There's a meeting of carpenters in Bethlehem. Let's hit the road, Mary. Joseph went there. Jesus was born there of Mary because they were required to go in response to that far-reaching enrollment ordered by Caesar himself. And sometimes in your translations of the Bible into English, you'll see that word enrollment rendered as census. But what you may not know is that enrollment and census was actually part of an empire-wide mandated tax program. How many of you still have a King James Bible at home? Maybe with you this morning. The King James Bible gets it most faithfully when those words in Greek are rendered this way. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. That's what's going on. That's why Mary and Joseph are on the road. New Testament scholars and biblical archaeologists have found historical records indicating that the Roman government did indeed require a registration for taxation. They wanted a headcount of every man, woman, and child, and they did that every 14 years. And that tax was imposed when Christ was born. Now, there are several different kinds of taxes mentioned in the Bible. We don't have time for them all this morning. But you might be surprised when it comes to the personal tax rate of first century Roman Empire. Now, I know many of you have opinions about taxes, and your opinions probably influenced your voting this month. But it is an historical fact that the Romans had a flat tax, and everyone paid the same rate. Now, are you ready for this? Under normal Circumstances. The flat tax rate at the time of Christ in the Roman Empire was a whopping 1%. And sometimes, in a time of war, it could climb as high as 3%. I know a lot of people today who would enjoy a tax rate of 1% during times of peace and 3% during times of war. 
I don't know anyone, and if you're one of these people, just come up and talk to me after the service. I want to meet someone like you. I don't know anyone who personally wishes, dreams, and prays that we could pay more taxes, federal, state, and city. If you're one of those people who wish you could pay more tax, just please, I, I need to shake your hand and take a long, hard look at you. <laughs> I think most of us pay the taxes that are required of us because they're required of us. <laughs> Not because we find any particular joy in sending hard-earned money to the IRS. And as much as some of you may dislike paying taxes, the Bible clearly tells us, pay them. <laughs> Jesus said so. Paul reaffirmed it. Now, because we're talking about church and state and our dual citizenship, the most frequent objection to paying taxes I hear from Christians these days is concern about that revenue being misused or wasted by government. And as citizens with dual life in the kingdom on the right and the kingdom on the left, we have every right to be concerned about such things and to do whatever we can, this side of heaven, to prevent misuse and waste of revenue. We don't pay our taxes because government is perfect. When Jesus said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, the Roman Empire was by no means a righteous government. And by the time of Paul, when he's instructing us to pay our taxes as good citizens, Nero was in power, considered by many to be the most evil of Roman emperors. Yet Jesus and his servant Paul make the point clearly, be responsible citizens. Have a good conscience. Pay your taxes even when government is headed by less than honorable or righteous people. So as Christians, we can and should be good citizens. We should render to government what we should render to government. But as Christians, we cannot. We should not. We must not render to government that which we should render to God and God alone. Our worship, our faith, our ultimate trust, our prayers, our hope, these are meant for God. They are founded in the Lord alone. I don't know about you, but I'm so disappointed and so concerned about so many people who are acting as if the world has come to an end because of our most recent presidential election. I mean, there are people who are in despair. And I wonder, do they know Christ? Do they not realize their ultimate hope is not in the person that happens to live in the White House for a few years, but in Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not any king or dictator, no governor, prime minister, prime minister or president. When we say Jesus is Lord, it means the government and those who govern are not. Jesus is Lord has been the church's confession from the beginning. We confess Jesus crucified and risen as Lord. Not any earthly power. Not any human being. And this is very significant, particularly these days. 
We confess as Christians before us that Jesus Christ is Lord. And over the last few decades, many Christians have changed that language to Jesus Christ is my Lord. Now, of course he's my Lord and your Lord. And Paul tells us in Romans 10 that those who confess Jesus as Lord are saved from sin and death. But nowhere in Scripture are we told that we should refer to Jesus as my personal Lord. I mean, being saved is deeply personal, right? But Jesus is Lord of all creation. He's even Lord over those who don't yet recognize him. And this is especially important now because we live in the context of relativism. Jesus is my Lord is often understood as what one individual person thinks about Jesus in the form of a personal opinion from a human point of view. And in the world of relativism, if you're not aware of this, you need to be because your kids and your grandkids are living in this world. In the world of relativism, all human viewpoints are equally valid. So saying Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, in many places simply describes, well, that's who Jesus is for you. And that's all. It's not a real truth. It's not a real absolute. It's opinion. It's personal. However heartfelt and sincere a confession of faith may be that Jesus is my Lord, we need to remember that Jesus is Lord of all. And in today's society, the individual is the center of everything. Maybe that's why so many are crying and sobbing mournfully over the last election because they didn't get their way. The individual person has become the source of his own truth. In our pluralistic world, so many of us have become hesitant, if not afraid, of daring to share our beliefs with others. We might insult them. They might not respect us if we say that we believe Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, the whole world. In today's politically correct environment, it's far safer to say, well, Jesus is Lord to me, if you dare to speak of Jesus at all. But the word of God says that Jesus is Lord. The Apostles' Creed reaffirms that because it's a relationship to the Father. Jesus must be understood first and foremost, not in relationship to us, but in relationship to God. He is the word made flesh. And secondly, our confession of Jesus as Lord is a confession which is not relativistic. It's not simply personal. It's not simply opinion. It is truth. And the church is bound together in faith because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. For those of us who are hesitant to share our faith, to declare Jesus as Lord because of today's environment, well, ancient Rome was no less challenging. It was not tolerant of Christians. It's a lot like our modern pluralistic world where people could get in trouble for daring to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And do you know this, that any public announcement of Jesus as Lord would have been heard as a threat, a challenge, an insult to Caesar who was hailed as Lord. Hail Caesar, the sun god, S-U-N. 
For Christians in the first century at the time of Paul to say Jesus is Lord meant simultaneously Caesar is not. And unlike Caesar, whose power was through the strength of political clout and military might, the victory of Jesus, who sits on the throne, has been gained through love. His death on the cross, on a Roman cross, no less. And this leads us to love. The love that Paul says fulfills all the Lord's expectations and commandments. If we, the church today, compromise our witness to the Lordship of Christ and who he is as the scriptures declare him to be, are we still a church of Jesus Christ? For the Lord said of himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We are called to be witnesses to this universal love of Jesus Christ in love. Not in hatred, not in intolerance, not in arrogance. We are to love our classmates, neighbors, co-workers who don't yet know and live in the love of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you, is it a faithful, is it a loving thing to do to somehow make Jesus into something less than who he truly is in order to gain acceptance in today's politically correct and intolerant environment? I think that if you truly love friends and co-workers and classmates, you can't help but tell them gently, lovingly, patiently about the one who loves them best of all and more than all. And that's Jesus the Lord. One way to describe what I'm talking about is evangelism. That's simply a sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ, the God who is love, who took on flesh and died for us. That's why the first and foremost part of our mission is to lead people to Christ. And we do that humbly, prayerfully, in love. Love and taxes. Not things we usually speak of at the same time. We pay our taxes not because we love to do it, but because we must do it. And if we don't, there are consequences. Consequences that can be severe. Love and Jesus. Oh, we speak of them in the same sentence to be sure, for God is love. But let's remember that this love has consequences as well. It caused Jesus to suffer death on a cross for sinners like you and a sinner like me. Yes, this love has consequences. There's a price to be paid. And this same love conquered death itself that you and I might truly live, not just exist, that we might truly live in the knowledge and the power of God's grace and mercy, knowing that no matter who's in the White House, no matter what tomorrow may bring, there has been one for us in eternal life that begins now and only extends when loved ones gather at our grave someday. So live boldly, you with dual citizenship in these two kingdoms. Render to the government what's due the government, but render to God 
that which only God deserves. Your love, your praise, your hope, and your prayers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.